talking about demons. What are the demons? Voices. Tell me about them. What are the voices about? It's one. It's another voice. The evil side. Yeah, whatever your name is, hey. Gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome back to the Evil Examined podcast. We are in the studio, sort of, with uh, John the Aviator. He has returned. And, of course, JP is in session as well today. What Yo, what's going on, John? Uh, not much, man. Yeah, thanks again for joining us uh, on the other episodes of the UFO stuff. I thought those were great. So we know you're a big tech guy. And since this story definitely involves some tech, uh, maybe a more nefarious sort of tech, we wanted to bring you back and, you know, give you an opportunity to to talk about it. Today, we're going to be taking a look into the strange death of Michael Hastings. And I know I kind of sent you a couple, a little bit of information on this before we started. Um, So I won't ask you, I know your level of uh, know-all in this is limited, but Gene, have you ever heard of... Michael Hastings, or do you know anything about his death? Uh, no, I haven't heard anything about it. Okay, cool. So this will, this will be a good first-time opinion, I think. You're going to kind of get... Because uh, we're going to dive pretty deep into it. We're going to go over quite a, quite a few things. And I think for us to objectively dissect the rumors swirling around his bizarre death, some would say murder, um, we must first understand his work. And if the conspiracy theory is valid, then it's through these occupational duties which he was ultimately done in. So we need to look at we need to take a look at his work, and I think that's a good place to start. So Michael Hastings was an unflinching journalist and a writer who was well known for penning war-related articles and books. He wrote powerful words, words that in some cases were so influential and revealing that they weren't just words. They were hard truths that at sometimes could trigger actions within the lives of very powerful people. So while he worked for Newsweek at the age of 25, Hastings found himself in Baghdad covering the war in Iraq. And the horror heartache that he would witness there on the front lines would be explained in his 2008 book, which was titled, I Lost My Love in Baghdad. So here's some from the description of that book that he wrote. In startling detail, he describes the chaos, the violence, the never-ending threats of bomb and mortar attacks, the front lines that can be half a mile from the green zone, 
this is a new kind of war. Private security companies following their own rules or lack thereof. Soldiers in combat getting instant messages from their girlfriends and families. Back in New York, Hastings had fallen in love with, with Andy Parhamovich. Hopefully I'm saying that right, but uh, <laughs> Parhamovich. Parhamovich. Parhanovit, maybe that's it. <laughs> it. There's an M in there in the spelling, but I don't know. But uh, either way, uh, a young idealist who worked for, the, for Air America. Now, a year into their courtship, Andy followed Michael to Iraq, taking a job with the National Democratic Institute. Their war zone romance is another window into life in Baghdad. They call each other pet names. They make plans for the future. They fight. Uh, usually because each is fearful for the other's safety, and they try to figure out how to get together when it means putting bodyguards and drivers in jeopardy. Then Andy goes on a dangerous mission for her new employer, a meeting at the Iraq Islamic Party headquarters that ends in catastrophe. And so, unfortunately, as the old saying goes, all is fair in love and war. And on Wednesday, January 17th, 2007, her blossoming love for Michael Hastings would be cut short by a barrage of bullets. Outside of the sunny Arab political office in Baghdad, where she had just finished teaching a class on democracy, around 30 or so insurgents, reportedly with ties to Al-Qaeda, took the lives of the 28-year-old and the three, gar- the three armed guards that were protecting her on the convoy trip back. So two others were injured in this firefight. The insurgents then melted away into the neighborhood. They believed that someone in the area had set her up in this ambush. And one of the last public descriptions of Andrea was that she was a, quote, driven young woman inspired by politics and a desire to help Iraqis connect with their newly elected government. She was an idealistic person who saw an opportunity to work with people in Iraq who were interested in democracy and human rights, which is what she cared about deeply. So that's pretty sad, right? I mean, that's he kind of fell in love with this girl, and then, you know, they're both there. He's covering the war. She's trying to make positive changes in their the community of these people that are torn apart by the war, and she's tragically uh, gunned down. It's pretty fucked up, huh? Yeah, that's not a good way to yeah. go about things, right? Yeah, I mean, are you guys familiar with these type, like, war journalism in general? Aside from uh, you know the stuff you see on TV where they they travel with the uh, with the troops, et cetera, et cetera, I I would say I don't know much past that. Yeah, I mean it sounds like they're it sounds like they're like really in there though, and and constantly in the threat of danger um, for a lot of this stuff. And I've I've seen documentaries about uh, other war journalists that you know they just have they just lust the stuff, you know, like. They go back home and then they're shopping and it's like, wow, life is so fucking boring and mundane. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sure that there takes a particular type of motivation in order to do something like this. Well, after his fiance's tragic death, he would eventually return home and advance his career forward, becoming an editor and contributor to Rolling Stone magazine, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with that magazine. At Rolling Stone, Hastings would release an explosive piece titled The Runaway General, which profiled the renegade ways of Stanley McChrystal, uh, who was top U.S. commander at the time of the Afghanistan war. 
The profile was released in July of 2010 and would also serve as the basis for another book of his, The Operators. I'm sorry, the title is The Operators, The Wild and Terrifying Inside Story of America's War in Afghanistan, a book that would become the inspiration for the Netflix original movie War Machine starring Brad Pitt. More relevant, though, than the, uh, than the facts about the movie or the book would be that this article would trigger the dismissal of 34-year veteran of the U.S. Army, uh, McChrystal. Does anybody know why McChrystal was, dis- was dismissed? Or uh, do you guys, did you guys hear about any of this? Like him, because this was actually like a relatively big article with Rolling Stone. And you might not be familiar with him, but maybe this article? I remember there's something about General McChrystal, uh, but I don't uh, necessarily remember. Is this the one about the uh, adultery, or the, or is that the other guy? It's probably the other guy. Oh, I think that's Petraeus. Yeah. Yeah, that's Petraeus. Yep, that's him. Well, that that's cool because I got there's a lot of there's some interesting details on this, and this is going to give you like a, an idea into how he operated, how Hastings operated. You know. Um, very meticulous. And so his interview piece starts off harmless enough with Hastings at the general's hotel room. He's describing McChrystal's awkwardness when wearing civilian garb and how his favorite movies, Talladega Nights, you know what I mean? Just like bullshit. <laughs> but McChrystal's clearly this hard ass military guy. And he was heading the Pentagon's most secretive black ops prior to President Obama placing him in charge of the Afghanistan war. And so to give you an idea of his rugged coldness, this is like a quote from Hastings' article, which we'll read a little more of the article in a moment too. But this quote is, he says, his slate blue eyes have the unsettling ability to drill down when they lock onto you. If you fucked up or disappointed him, they can destroy your soul without the need for him to even raise his voice. Have you ever met somebody like that? I want to say maybe a couple of times, and I think both of them were ex-military guys. And I, and I feel like uh, the guys that reach rank that high, it's almost a prerequisite to have some, you know, some sort of like physical appearance like that, you know, because if not, these other guys who are, you know, gung-ho or macho, whatever it is, you know, that uh, they're, they're, uh, they're sergeants, they're, they're uh, you know, they're people, um, they need that. They need that in, in their leader to, to pretty much have that stare, that like that like old school daddy stare. It's like, oh, they got to command respect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. By, by just staring at them. <laughs> Leadership's incredibly important in the military, of course. And it's pretty cool. Like he, he kind of gets in, you, you get some insight into some parts of that with the article. But McChrystal is in France in the first place because it's essentially his job to sell the U.S. allies on the war. And I put allies in quotations because, like, I don't know, it, it, he ruffled people's feathers, essentially, more so than smoothing things over, it seems like, from, from what's reported. So it says, like, while, while he's described as sharper and ballsier than anyone else, Hastings explains this attitude comes with a cost. In, in that year in which McChrystal had been in charge of the war, he essentially irked everyone involved with the beef. McChrystal's first encounter with the president was a week after he took office, and Obama met with dozens of other military officials. McChrystal made some bold comments that the president appeared uncomfortable and intimidated. 
by so many military personnel. He also pissed on some of Vice President Joe Biden's comments, and he was reprimanded in a private meeting by, uh, by Obama. So, yeah, he was definitely like ruffling some feathers after being placed in. And I guess Obama placing, replacing a general in the middle of a war was something that hadn't been done since like in like 54 years or something. Like it's super uncommon for that to happen. And so he's kind of outlining these, you know, this kind of tension between McChrystal and the White House. But so here's some some direct stuff from Hastings article, the one that would end up getting him released, the, the general released. From the start, McChrystal was determined to place his personal stamp on Afghanistan to use it as a laboratory for a controversial military strategy known as counterinsurgency. You guys know about counterinsurgency? I haven't heard of it. it. It's like a different philosophy. It's interesting. This is the first time I heard of it when reading this, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I don't know, but and it's, it's abbreviated as, they call it COIN. So that's like the abbreviation for it. COIN is the theory that is known as the new gospel of the Pentagon brass, a doctrine that attempts to square the military's preference for high-tech violence with the demands of fighting protracted wars in failed states. COIN calls for spending huge numbers of ground troops to not only destroy the enemy, but to live among the civilian population and slowly rebuild or build from scratch, a process that even its staunchest advocates admit requires years, if not decades, to achieve. So it's a, it just sounds like a bad idea for war, right? <laughs> like you're going to murder a bunch of people and destroy their whole community, right? Their culture. And then try and sounds- rebuild it and be like, oh, we're going to bring you democracy. <laughs> you know what I mean? That sounds like some Genghis Khan shit. So it's pretty bizarre to me, yeah. But... The theory essentially rebrands the military, expanding its authority and its funding to encompass the diplomatic and political sides of warfare. Think the Green Berets as an an armed peace corps. In 2006, after General David Petraeus, that's the aforementioned John, this is the fucking cheater dude, beta tested the theory during his surge in Iraq, it quickly granted a hardcore following of think tankers, journalists, military officials, and civilian officials. Nicknamed Coindanistas for their cultish zeal, believed the doctrine would be a perfect solution for Afghanistan. All they needed was a general with enough charisma and political savvy to implement it. So what do you think? What do you guys think? Does this... Does coin sound like a good idea to you? Well, like I said, I don't know if you guys heard me. Uh, it sounds like some like Viking invasion kind of shit strategy. We pillage and murder and then try to rebuild. Remember the hearts and minds um, marketing thing back back uh, during the early or mid point of the war? That kind of reminds me of that. And as McChrystal leaned on Obama to ramp up the war, he did it with the same fearlessness that he used to track down terrorists in Iraq. Figure out how your enemy operates, be faster and more ruthless than everybody else, and then take the fuckers out. After arriving in Afghanistan last June, the general conducted his own policy review ordered up by the Defense Secretary Robert Gates. The now infamous report was leaked to the press, and its conclusion was dire. 
If we didn't send another 40,000 troops swelling the number of U.S. forces in Afghanistan by nearly half, we would, we would endanger the mission of failure. And the White House was furious. McChrystal, they felt, was trying to bully Obama, opening them up to charges of being weak on national security unless he did what the general wanted. It was Obama versus the Pentagon, and the Pentagon was determined to kick the president's ass. So you see how they're kind of like openly stating this type of stuff and when it's probably best discussed behind closed doors. Yeah, I'm sure no, that's never welcomed. He goes on to say, last fall, with his top general calling for more troops, Obama launched a three-month review to reevaluate the strategy in Afghanistan. I found that time painful, McChrystal tells me in one of several lengthy interviews. I was selling an unsellable position. For the general, it was a crash course in Beltway politics, a battle that pitted him against experienced Washington insiders like Vice President Biden, who argued that a prolonged counterinsurgency campaign in Afghanistan would plunge America into a military quagmire without weakening international terrorist networks. The idea that we are going to spend a trillion dollars to reshape the culture of Islamic worlds is utter nonsense. But Obama eventually would kind of give McChrystal what he wanted. He'd end up giving him 30,000 troops. So he didn't give him the 40,000, but he did give him, he goes on to say he did give him the 30,000. And he was kind of like hesitantly behind the counterinsurgency. And he kind of points out too that like he never used the word win when he was talking about it. Like they weren't really expecting to win, just sort of continue on with this war is what it seemed like because i mean to reshape everything you know all right and then towards the end he says today as mccrystal gears up for an off for an offensive in southern afghanistan the prospects for many kinds of success look bleak in june the death toll for the u.s troops passed a thousand and the number of ieds has doubled Spending hundreds of billions of dollars on the fifth poorest country on earth has failed to win over the civilian population whose attitude towards U.S. troops ranges from intensely wary to openly hostile. The biggest military operation of the year, a ferocious offensive that began in February to retake the southern town of Mirage. It says it continues to drag on, prompting McChrystal himself to refer to it as a bleeding ulcer. In June, Afghanistan officially outpaced Vietnam as the longest war in American history, and Obama has quietly begun to back away from the deadline that he set for withdrawing U.S. troops in July of next year. The president finds himself stuck in something even more insane than the quagmire, a quagmire he knowingly walked into, precisely the kind of gigantic, mind-numbing, multi-generational national building project he explicitly said he didn't want. Even those who support McChrystal and his strategy on counterinsurgency know that whatever the general manages to accomplish in Afghanistan is going to look more like Vietnam than Desert Storm. It's not going to look like a win, smell like a win, or taste like a win, says Major General Bill Mayville, who serves as the chief operations for McChrystal. It's going to end in an argument. So some other interesting parts of the article is like he... He takes his wife out to dinner, like with, with staff, and Hastings describes a handpicked collection of killers, spies, geniuses, patriots, 
political operators and outright maniacs. He's basically sitting at the table with all of these just weird military people kind of of all special, you know, it's all specialty kind of stuff. And it's actually their 33rd anniversary. And his wife, Annie, has only been seeing him 30 days a year. <laughs> so it's like it's like their anniversary. And it's kind of hilarious. They're all sitting at this table with these maniacs. And Hastings is like, this is a fucking weird, like a weird thing. You know? know how to be romantic. Yeah. <laughs> this, has, this has a fucking headquarter meeting. So a little later in the article, Hastings flashes back also to the early days of the general's career, beginning with his time at West Point. He was regarded as brilliant with endless potential, but he was a wild man drinking, partying nonstop, and earned him uh, he earned himself over 100 hours of demerits. He wound up ranking 298 out of a class of 855 which was looked at like a serious underachievement considering how they viewed him to be like this second coming of an amazing soldier, you know? He went from the army to into the special forces and he would go to overseas military most elite units, including the Rangers, Navy SEALs, and Delta Force. It was during this stint that Hastings wrote, McChrystal took part in a cover-up that could have destroyed the career of lesser men. And, John, I'm sure you remember Pat Tillman, but, Gene, do you know who Pat Tillman was? No clue. John, you want to tell us who Pat Tillman was? Yeah, so Pat Tillman um, was a, uh, an American um, special operations uh, soldier who was um, killed uh, due to friendly fire. He played for the uh, Arizona Cardinals. Do you remember that? Yep, and I actually remember, because I'm a big Giants fan, I remember the Giants playing the Cardinals one time and their kicker got hurt and Pat Tillman actually subbed in as the kicker and he was doing like kickoffs and stuff too. It was pretty awesome. But yeah, so like John said, um, you know, he was killed by friendly fire, but they tried, you know, uh, McChrystal signed off on falsified recommendation for a silver star that suggested Tillman had been killed by enemy fire. McChrystal would later claim that he didn't read the recommendation closely enough, which is a strange excuse for a commander known for his laser-like attention to minute details. A week later, McChrystal sent out a memo up the chain of command specifically warning that President Bush should avoid mentioning the cause of Tillman's death. If the circumstances of Corporal Tillman's death become public, he wrote, it could cause public embarrassment for the president. So he, he gave him the heads up. Don't fucking mention it. The false narrative, which McChrystal clearly helped construct, diminished Pat's true actions, wrote Tillman's mother Mary in her book Boots on the Ground by Dusk. McChrystal got away with it, she added, because he was the golden boy of Rumsfeld and Bush, who loved his willingness to get things done, even if it included bending the rules or skipping the chain of command. Nine days after Tillman's death, McChrystal was promoted to Major General. So two years later, he would be involved in another scandal that involved a detainee at one of the camps. According to a report by Human Rights Watch, prisoners at the camp were subjected to a now familiar litany of abuse, stress positions, being dragged naked through the mud, amongst other things. Uh, McChrystal was not disciplined in the scandal, even though an interrogator at the camp reported seeing him inspect the prison multiple times. 
And Hastings also reported that the general frequently finds himself apologizing for disastrous uh, consequences of counterinsurgency. In the first four months of the year, NATO forces killed some 90 civilians, up 76% from the same period in 2009, a record that has created tremendous resentment among the very population that that coined theory is intent on winning over. In February, a special forces night raid ended in the deaths of two pregnant Afghan women and alleged and allegations of a cover-up. And in April, protests erupted in Kandahar after U.S. forces accidentally shot up a bus killing five Afghans. We've shot an amazing number of people, McChrystal recently conceded. He's, I mean, he's carving up the general in this piece pretty good. But in fairness, McChrystal's like the kind of guy that's not going to hide shit, I guess. Because he's a dick. He almost seemed like the kind of um, commander that would get things done, even though it wasn't in the cleanest way. So they probably looked the other way for a lot of things. No, definitely, dude. Some soldiers disliked him. And I, I thought that this was interesting, too. Like, the there was kind of a... Uh, a mini mutiny amongst the soldiers and some of them disliked him for rewarding people for quote not killing so it's it's um he he was discussing creating a medal for courageous restrainment is what he called it um because the hesitation can put them at risk the soldiers weren't a fan of this though you know like um some of the restrictive rules that co- the coin philosophy had them abiding by many, made many of them feel like they weren't winning in Afghanistan. Hastings noted, McChrystal may have sold President Obama on count, uh, counterinsurgency, but many of his own men aren't buying it. When it comes to Afghanistan, history is not on McChrystal's side. The only foreign invader to have any success here was Genghis Khan, which is funny because you, Gene mentioned that earlier, and he wasn't hampered by things like human rights. You That's know? right. Ra- wrapping up, it says, uh, Hastings concludes the article by saying, so far, counterinsurgency has succeeded only in creating a never-ending demand for primary product supplied by military, perpetual war. There is a reason that President Obama studiously avoids the word victory when he talks about Afghanistan. Winning it, would seem, is not really possible, not even with Stanley McChrystal in charge. So it's obvious that Hastings has eloquently outlined the riff and seeming insubordination between the general and the White House and the failures and the never-ending war potential of the counterinsurgency program the unhappiness of his soldiers, and a couple of scandals that McChrystal had previously gotten a pass on from the media. All of which combined, though, led to this explosion, right? And a lot of people getting their eyeballs on this article and eventually his dismissal, which this is a quote from uh, Obama. The conduct represented in the recently published article does not meet the standard that should be met by or set by a commanding general. So he announced his departure and he said it undermines the civilian control of military that is at the core of our democratic system. You know, this level of dedication that Michael Hastings had to his profession is super important. So I wanted to hammer this home to begin with 
Um, and I know it took a while, but I think it was important that we look and we see the details and we see how, you know, the head of a war, right? A fucking war that involves tons of money, right? Tons of resources, uh, politics, everything. He was able to have this man displaced. That's how powerful his reporting was, right? Um, so that so that's important for us to understand because this is where things get turned up. At 4.20 a.m., light it up. On the morning of June 18th, Michael Hastings was driving a brand new Mercedes C250 Coupe down the Melrose intersection on Highland Avenue in Hollywood. According to eyewitness accounts, the vehicle suddenly accelerated rapidly. The car bounced several times before fishtailing and slammed into a palm tree, uh, which upon it burst into flames. The engine of the C-250 ejected from the vehicle and was found some 200 feet away. So just that high-level kind of explanation. This is where I would really like to get your guys' opinions on um, as far as car crashes at 100 miles an hour. What do you guys think? Engine 200 feet away, too? That's another thing that people seem to find bizarre. Does that normally happen in, in accidents? Engines shoot out the fucking car itself? No. <laughs> it sounds a little ridiculous yeah i mean if you think about it even though the the seat class for mercedes happens to be like their lower model you know like they're like their entry level um modern uh modern automobiles are pretty much engineered around uh road safety and they don't they don't they're made to contain um their firewalls you know contain the engine bay uh component from going into your kneecaps um, and the same sort of like connections keep that engine from, um, from, you know, just going outside of that relative uh, normal area around the, the frame of the car. So that, that, that is suspicious a little bit. Yeah. And I think um, actually a representative from Mercedes said that the, the design of it is for the engine to actually drop down you know, obviously not eject out, drop down. So like you said, it doesn't crush the leg. It doesn't go past the firewall into the, into the, uh, the passenger compartment. Yeah. Because yeah. everything has like a crumple zone or some sort of like design to, um, evade the passenger compartment so that they can, they can, you know, uh, late at night when you're watching your commercial, they can say, Hey, we got five star safety rating, you know, and then you'll go out and buy it the next morning. So, Jose Rublaclava, whose house stood adjacent to the crash, said no one could approach, like they were trying to go check on him, but he said no one could approach the burning car because it kept exploding. So like it exploded initially, but then it, it just continued to keep exploding, I guess, is what, what he reported. There's a video of the immediate aftermath of the crash, which uh, we'll put up on evilexamined.com for you guys to check out. That shows some of the immediate aftermath. The car is a, basically a total fireball. It's burning like a bonfire is what it looks like. And um, in the video, too, like you can see the multiple explosions in the, uh, in the um, security vi surveillance video. So you see like almost an immediate massive explosion and then a surplus of other explosions follow after that. Um, which on the, in the news article that I was reading, they were saying that that's 
uncommon for for multiple explosions. Do you know anything about that, John? I don't. I don't know anything about that. I would. I would uh, suspect that there aren't many items in an automobile like a traditional internal combustion, like that C two fifty, that would keep exploding. Um, electric uh, vehicles are known to have that sort of a, like combustibility, for lack of a better term, because of the battery compartments. So when they when those temperatures are reached, the, the lithium-ion batteries in these cars tend to be of more fire risk um, as they're harder to put out as well um, if they do catch fire. But uh, as far as a normal car, I don't know why it would keep uh, uh, exploding in, in small little bursts like that. And if I remember correctly from the article about, about the accident, the, um, the body was so badly burned that they couldn't identify it at the scene and they had to wait until they got, I believe, fingerprints, right? Yeah, I believe that was, I believe you're correct on that. Or it might have, it might have been dental, I don't know. But yeah, it, 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 it was, was really badly burnt. They, they, they couldn't find, they couldn't locate any sort of identification at all uh, because everything was just charred and they had to wait until afterwards is what uh, I remember reading. Um, so it was, it was quite a fire. Absolutely, and... To kind of reiterate some of the things you said, but uh, the problem, you know, like there's a crash, there's a simulated full full frontal crash test that I watched of the C250 coupe. Um, The car doesn't explode on impact, nor does it launch its engine 200 feet. However, I did notice that the, uh, the car crash was only, I believe, at like, 35 40 miles per hour so i don't know yeah, if they cr- i don't think test, yeah. so i don't think they crash test for 100 miles per hour but niall isaiah a mercedes-benz dealer in long beach was quoted as saying that the car has a crumble zone which you alluded to john so when it crashes it goes in like an accordion and in some cases the engine drops down so it so it doesn't go into you so that's kind of what we we're saying. So based on the full frontal crash test only being 35 miles per hour, um, what I did is I pulled six sample crashes that were test that were 100 miles per hour randomly off YouTube to use as data. I just kind of scoured the internet and did my own research. I mean, this is not fucking definitive by any means, but I thought it might be an interesting um, gauge I guess. So the first one I saw was reported by local news and it was a driver that died in a car crash uh, that was over a hundred miles an hour. So driver died. The car was crushed. No explosion. Mythbusters came up after that. The car was compressed to half its size in that one. No explosion. Um, CNN Driver survived without injury, no explosion. Number four was local news, two dead, one injured, explosion triggered that killed driver. The fifth sample was local news, car flipped over, uh, no explosion. And then the sixth one was a police dash cam video of a car going 100 miles an hour, and he's following him, and then up off in the distance, you can see the car explodes into a ball of flames, five dead. So it's it's not completely unheard of for a car to explode. 
I was able to locate some examples right on YouTube, but I think they're repeated explosions, maybe a cause for concern, and obviously the ejection of the engine. What do you guys think about these random crashes? Is that do you think that makes sense? That makes sense. I think what 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 you also have to remember, and a lot of that I think has been done on shows like Mythbusters and, and things like that, is that. Unlike the movies, gasoline tends to more erupt and catch fire, not necessarily explode. Um, and, and obviously the fuel air mixture has to be all right there too. But um, so, you know, something that could launch something of the mass of a, uh, of a sedan uh, engine to be thrown somewhere. This is assuming that the crash didn't send this flying somewhere. Uh, to that distance uh, is is sort of suspicious. Yeah, it, it sounds like there was a foreign object in there that may have exploded the engine out of the, the fucking the body of the car. Because what what is I mean, what's an average engine weigh? That's isn't it like over a ton or something? Like what? It, how much does it weigh? I don't know. I, I, I doubt it's I doubt it's over a ton because let's say that sedan probably weighed. I don't know, a ton and a half, maybe tops, you know? Oh yeah, true. Um, so, but, but regardless, again, the amount of energy to launch something like that, that far away is that's, that's a considerable amount. So you have to ask yourself, well, assuming it happened at the point of impact with this tree, then that means that the engine, the car hit at, almost a perfect angle for the engine to come loose of, of its engine mounts and then fly across, you know, the, the, the road or the field or whatever, and get to that, that, that distance, which is extremely unlikely because of the way these cars are designed. Yeah. If it hit the, the tree directly, the, the engine would have impacted the tree itself. Yeah, exactly. Completely it would have dropped, dropped slightly clear of, of the passenger compartment where the crumple zones can happen. Or it would have been, you know, anything, anything along the like the angle of how it hit and the speed, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, again, it's just it's that's very that's very strange. Yeah, which in the video that I saw too, it looked like it was the the face of the car was in the tree. You know what I mean? Like the front end. Like maybe if it hit it at an angle, you know, maybe somehow the momentum, but. The way the car was positioned makes that even more makes that one-off kind of scenario seem even more unlikely. Um, In my opinion, that would be a tough distance to meet if if you had that engine mounted on the hood with just straps and you wanted to launch it as soon as you hit something. You get what I'm saying? So you yeah, forget about it being in the car. You're saying yeah. So like if it was if it was just on 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 attached with duct tape and you hit that tree at 100 miles an hour. It, you you probably struggle to make that distance with that thing. <laughs> so that's the only way I see that happening is if it dropped out of the car and rolled down a hill. I don't I don't see it logically flying. I'm gonna throw another conspiracy theory in this. Somebody picked up the engine and put it over there. <laughs> I was thinking about that, but it didn't make sense. That's ill. The multiple explosions just seemed like a petty thing. So it seemed like someone really hated this guy and just wanted to fucking keep blowing him up. And, and on that note, I actually wanted to, to throw out a quote that I found in a New York Magazine article about this, um, where it talks about um, 
he tended to be, uh, this is Hastings, uh, tended to be nonchalant about possible repercussions with his stories. And he said, quote, whenever I'd been reporting around groups of dudes whose job it was to kill people, one of them would usually mention that they were going to kill me. Yeah, <laughs> I read that quote as well. And actually, we're we're probably going to get into some of that right now. Um, so Hastings continued to report his stories that illuminated on the darker side of U.S. military actions, including an investigation uh, into the Army deployment of PSYOPs and psychological operations and U.S. senators visiting combat zones in order to secure more war funding. So this is like, you know, after kind of after his book release and everything, he was reporting that before before the accident, of course. L.A. Weekly interviewed Hastings' neighbor, Jordana Thigpen, who said Hastings was convinced that he was the target of surveillance after reading about the Department of Justice's seizure of AP phone records in May. He became even more wary, she said, when the details about the NSA's domestic spying programs emerged in early June through former contractor Edward Snowden. He was scared and he didn't and he wanted to leave town, Thigpen said. So I mean, this is big. Like if he's if he's alarmed by it, he sees the release of information, he's starting to get a little paranoid, it sounds like. The story that Hastings was working on at the time of his death was centered around CIA Director John Brennan and Chief Architect, I'm sorry, the Chief Architect of President Obama's Foreign Drone Program. It related specifically to Brennan's role as the administration point man in tracking investigative journalists and their sources in Washington. A WikiLeaks email from Straightfor a CIA-connected private security firm whose emails were hacked and released to the public by WikiLeaks in February reveals that Brennan was indeed behind the witch hunts of investigative journalists. So it's confirmed, it's confirmed in the, the WikiLeaks emails that they were looking at him. So that's definitive that he was being uh, monitored by the government. The night of his death, Hastings had contacted WikiLeaks attorney Jennifer Robinson and sent an email to his colleagues at the news site BuzzFeed saying that he was working on a big story and was going off the radar. He cited fears over federal authorities interviewing his friends. Hastings also blind copied his friend, uh, it's a staff sergeant, Joe Briggs, whom Hastings had known from his time being embedded in Afghanistan. According to LA Weekly, for just two hours before the deadly crash, Hastings asked to borrow his neighbor's Volvo because he suspected his own car's computer system had been hacked. The Los Angeles Police Department said repeatedly it suspects no foul play. Questioned after Hastings' death, the FBI confirmed that the journalist was not under any investigation. So, I mean, that's that speaks volumes to me that... We're, we're talking now, and I, I guess the, the listeners will probably be in on this at this point, that we're, potential of the car being hacked. There's some holes to that, too, because according to, to some articles about this, the FBI was um, snooping around with his friends and, you know, just I guess just getting like general information. And um, the L.A. Uh, police department 
um, was sort of wishy-washy on whether or not they had ruled everything out. Like he said that, that they, uh, they initially said they, they didn't suspect foul play. And then they came back and said that they hadn't ruled anything out. So they were, they, they just immediately sort of like, uh, stomped on their own parade there by, uh, by going back on what they had just said. Well, the reason for that is that it says the FBI, um, they, they had to, to, um, redact their statements essentially because FBI documents followed, uh, a freedom of information act that was requested by Al Jazeera, the news network. Yep. And it says it showed that Hastings was in fact under investigation for a story in which he had interviewed a U.S. soldier who had been captured in Afghanistan. So, like you said, wishy-washy, back and forth. Um, right. Nothing. Nothing is clear. It's all. It's all clear as mud. Is the way they make it sound. Right. So in an, in an era of unsanctioned drone warfare where a man operating a joystick in New Mexico can carry out a remote-controlled assassination of a person worldwide who shows up on the president's kill list, it may not be far-fetched to imagine that similar capabilities and technologies are being employed closer to home. Richard Clark, the counterterrorism chief under both Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, told the Huffington Post that Hastings' crash looked consistent with a car cyber attack so here's the thing right the research is there it is possible to to hack cars this is yes this is not fantasy so is it that go ahead my problem with the just blaming like let's say car hacking is again the physical evidence that we just talked about that engine being so far away uh, the multiple explosions. I mean, you don't do that with car hacking, with the components in the car. You know that that to me that sounds like foreign objects <laughs> were placed on. Well, to to me it sounds like a combination. It sounds yeah, like you know, it sounds like a combo, right? Is that what you were thinking? Go ahead, Gene. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was thinking of that because for one, there's no reason for him to be driving over a hundred miles an hour, especially <laughs> if he's he has a uh, a big break. He doesn't want to risk his life. No, that's an excellent point. And the explosions are a little suspicious. Imagine he wanted to go. What did he say under the radar? And he uh, and he gets pulled over to get a speeding ticket. You know, this guy was probably trying to drive like a grandma until until he finishes work. Well, that's actually that's actually a quote from some of his friends. They they say he drove like a grandma. That's how they described his normal driving. It's funny you use that terminology because that's that's exactly how he was described by his friends but let's talk a little bit about the car hacking stuff stefan savage a computer science professor at the university of california san diego um, he said that any modern vehicles computer system made by a man by any manufacturer can be hacked Savage described a series of experiments that he and his team conducted in which they remotely hacked a car's computer systems. And this is his direct quote. If you're talking about where people have arbitrary control over a car, that takes a significant amount of time. If you want to take it over completely and break it, that's less complicated. But I mean, who has a significant amount of money and time? The government. 
but <laughs> that's that's an easy answer, right? Um, and Savage explained that all computers in a car are connected to one another, bridged by one component and comprised by that same component. As a result, he said, we could listen to conversations in the car and could take over everything in the drivetrain like acceleration and brakes through a cellular network in terms of range and power to manipulate a vehicle remotely, he said. We found vulnerabilities from a thousand miles away. After the successful experiments were reported, Savage noted a huge response from manufacturers that spurred new innovations in cybersecurity for car computer systems. They've spent millions of dollars on hiring new people and acknowledged that cybersecurity is something that they need to take seriously. And John, I think this is something that you were telling me about, right? As far as um, vehicle security and what companies do. Yeah. I mean, more and more, you're going to see run-of-the-mill cars, not not your expensive luxury cars, just run-of-the-mill, your, your Chevy Tahoe's of the world, uh, although that's not a very cheap car. But either way, the... Uh, um, those types of cars that people consider, you know, the Joe, uh, Joe Schmo, John Smith type cars, um, um, they have a lot of technology in them. And a lot of them have tracking software, uh, all for owner comfort, right? So that you can know where your daughter is or you can, uh, where did you leave your car parked in the middle of this uh, gigantic airport parking lot? Things like that. Um, these conveniences, these creature comforts um, are becoming more and more common. And they're all technology-based with GPS, with apps, um, and they are now more susceptible to hacking. And a lot of the manufacturers, what they do is they take a very proactive um, stance on this, uh, especially companies like Tesla, who has in the past, as early as March of 2019, uh, or as, I should say as late as March 2019, entering um, into the TechCrunch, which is a technology publisher. Um, they, uh, they run you know, stories on just, your, on just typical tech and apps and things like that. Well, they, they entered into this TechCrunch, um, I believe it's Pwn to Own, and I, I apologize if, I don't, uh, if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but what it, what it really is, is just a bunch of hackers sitting around and trying to hack into a system um, and they win prizes because of it. It's sort of like a competition that TechCrunch um, hosts. And Tesla, what they did was they said, hey, hack our Model 3 and it's yours. So it's, uh, it's sort of like this cool incentive where these hackers will not only be known now for doing it, they get a free car out of it. Um, and then Tesla now takes the data and the methods and goes back with their in-house security team and says, Stop this, you know, um, and then rinse and repeat. Um, so uh, it is, it's just growing. I mean, it, it's its going to be in, in most cars in no time if it isn't already in most cars. Um, you know, you got OnStar, you got um, Blue Links, um, things like that, that ju- are just in so many cars and you don't even notice it. Yeah. And in 2015, security researchers Charlie Miller and Chris Valasic were able to hack into a 2014 Jeep Cherokee successfully, and they managed to turn on the steering wheel. So there was this whole um, recall of 1.4 million vehicles. Um, and it supposedly, I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's a system called UConnect that 
um, was common in Dodge, Jeep, and Chrysler vehicles. It's like an entertainment, a wireless entertainment and navigation system. And I guess that that was a big vulnerability that led to the to the recall. But it's certainly uh, something. You know, I think like, I believe that there's a quote that I was reading recently. There's something about like, it's a certain year. And I don't know if it's like 2005 or something. But they're like any car with a computer in it since that year. And I believe it was 2005 can be hacked to some extent you know maybe yeah, not that, not to what we're saying sense. in this case and, and the thing that you that we have to sort of separate uh but we don't i don't have any uh numbers on this is um what are we talking about as far as hacking is hacking just getting into the system and being able to know where the car is or is hacking getting into the system and controlling its throttle its brakes its steering um, you could argue that those cars were probably by then uh, no longer had mechanical linkage. It was now uh, you were driving by wire. So that's a, that's a term in aviation that's been around for a while, fly-by-wire, where the airplane went from having a literal cable go from the yoke to the control surfaces to now having the control the, the yoke at the pilot's uh, seat going into a computer device that would then tell the control surfaces, I think this is what the pilot wants you to do, and then they'll, and then they'll do it. Um, this is similar in cars, where you know you have, the, you have um, car guys or drivers or, or pure drivers, whatever they want to be called, complaining, oh, I don't feel the steering. It's, it's, it's computer steering. It's not, it's not old steering like in the, in the 60s Mustangs or in this or in that. Um, that's more common now, and I, I could argue that that's probably the tipping point as far as manufacturing when they all went to that that sort of technology. Yeah, I think that's indicated in a lot of the studies, and I think it's also important for us to specify that um, re- this is this could be remotely hacked. You know what I mean? Not necessarily in person. It could be both. Right. You know. But uh, I think some people might think like, oh, you know, are they? Do they have to be near the car to hack it? No, it could it could be, it could be remote. In these many of these studies, it's it's remotely hacked. It's yeah, and the jeep the jeep uh, uh, incident that you mentioned that's the one that came to my mind when you mentioned this topic to me, and I couldn't remember the specifics. But the the two things that I took away from that it, it, that was a remote hack. That was on an uh, on a vehicle that you'll find all over the place that you don't necessarily associate with having tons of technology in it or, or being a, a car of techies or a self-driving car or anything of that matter. Right. Right. I mean, you think of a, a Jeep Cherokee and you're like, Oh, this is an American, you know, this is a, this, uh, this is a car for the average Joe. Like, uh, you know, it, it, you don't think of any of that stuff. Um, you know, like I said before, he didn't have to be driving necessarily a Mercedes in order for this to be, to happen to him. Um, it, it all, almost all late model cars will have some sort of susceptibility to this sort of uh, hacking attack. Yeah, I think um, the Mercedes probably made the job a little easier if, in fact, that was the case. But after the fiery crash, Hastings' charred remains were quickly cremated but not before the L.A. coroner released a report indicating that the journalist had trace amounts of methamphetamine and marijuana in his system. 
Mainstream media jumped on the angle, eager to dismiss Hastings' complex backstory in favor of the simple line. He was another young, talented, but out-of-control drug addict who tragically ended his own life. Despite NBC Southern California playing, uh, plainly reporting that the drugs in Hastings' body were ruled, were ruled to have had nothing to do with the crash, it did not stop the media from smearing Hastings in its coverage. So it's definitely an important detail, and it's, but it also sounds like it's important to uh, differentiate uh, what a trace amount is. If they were able to rule that it had nothing to do with the crash, it sounds like so it might have been being blown out of proportion. The coroner's report was trace. Yes. Yeah, so that, that, that's, that's just uh, exaggerating at that point, right? I mean, it, it, because it sounds good. And it's so cliché that let's say all of these rumors, all of these conspiracies are true, that this guy would be, you know, pumped with drugs or trace amounts of drugs and then put to, you know, to, oh, he's going to take his own life. Like, it's just something out of like an A&E sort of crime uh, drama. It just seems so lazy. Right. Yeah, I think, all, and it could be fabricated all the whole way through, like, who's, who's not to say that? Well, obviously, when you say the media, I feel like the government uh, have heavily influences the media, and they're, they're possibly in their pockets. So if they wanted to kill someone and make them look like a crackhead or a fucking alien, they could. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's far-fetched. I mean, if they're, if they're able to hack the car and... <laughs> fucking put bombs in it explosive device that's what almost as crazy as that sounds at this point that's what seems like the most logical thing that happened was a mixture of both right right yeah and it says nbc report this was from the nbc report an autopsy this is like the exact report that they were talking about um an autopsy report released tuesday found traces of amphetamine and marijuana in the body of journalist Michael Hastings, but said it likely did not contribute to his death in a fiery single car crash. Coroner's investigators said that the 33-year-old Hastings was believed to be using the hallucinogenic DMT recently, though it wasn't wasn't detected in a blood test. I, I mean... How the fuck do they know that? How do they know? Like, how would they know that he was doing DMT if if it wasn't in the blood test. <laughs> it's not like the coroner watches football with him or anything. You know what I mean? Like It's like they sprinkled a bunch of that, sh- like a little bit of crack afterwards on his ashes and shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and D- DMT is a naturally inc- occurring thing in your body. So what the fuck are they talking about? Yeah, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like in plants and stuff, right? Uh, as well as plants. It's found on almost every plant. Yeah, so again... If you go back, right, and this is like me as the couch potato detective, right? You're looking at this and you're asking yourself, well, if I had to plan it, maybe I'd do it the same way because it it presents doubt as far as, well, if he was upset, if he was a drug user, you know, if if he was being um, investigated by the FBI and... You know, so people will start to, like, connect dots and say, you know, oh, he brought it upon himself. And then they're not going to ask any more questions past that. Yeah, exactly. 
But uh, you know what comes to mind, and this is um, this is looked at in accident investigation with aviation as well. Uh, uh, rubber marks. So, did he attempt to break? Is there any indication anywhere that talks about whether or not he applied the brakes and there there are, there are tire marks on the road? Uh, they're not mentioned in any of the articles, but it's it's a great point because you would think that that would actually, if they had evidence that he was trying to break, uh, I mean, the fact that there isn't any probably leads me more towards the hack scenario, right? Because the hack the, yeah. and, the, and the either inability to react and apply control or, um, and by that I mean, Maybe he was already knocked out by something, um, or or on well, the brakes disabled. Or on top of that, you know, he uh, he couldn't. He was slamming the the brake pedal, and nothing was happening. Um, the the key there is, did if they didn't find any markings, because think about it, even somebody impaired, in my opinion, you hit a, a median, you hit some sort of something that that kind of throws you out of control. What are you doing? You're like grasping that wheel and just slamming the brakes. It's just like in this instinctive thing to do um, that, that you don't even think about it as, as, as somebody who drives for an X amount of time. It's just something you automatically know how to, even though it might be the bad thing, like let's say if you're hydroplaning or if to apply that control surface. So um, uh, yeah, that, that type of stuff kind of, again, just it brings more kind of a mess to this, to the story. Yeah, Definitely. And a CNN on a CNN segment broadcast shortly after General McChrystal's forced resignation, CBS chief foreign correspondent Lara Logan said, "Michael Hastings had ne- has never served his country the way McChrystal has." Hastings' runaway general article had drawn Pentagon apologists out of the woodwork, who condemned him for breaking with, for breaking what anonymous sources for the Washington Post and ABC News called unspoken journalistic ground rules. So the mainstream media was shitting on him. Well, the, I feel like um, I feel like that's been happening like more and more often, right? Like where these freelance guys that don't necessarily have like a permanent big position at the top uh, the top media outlets are always sort of like reported on uh, with this suspicion that they have some sort of other agenda because they don't have an NBC, CBS, Fox News badge, you know? Yeah. And a program. Exactly. Right, right, or talk show. <laughs> so. And in the last four months, amid heightened tensions over government spying and the in a widened pursuit of whistleblowers, many have speculated that Hastings' death was the product of a conspiracy involving the CIA, NSA, FBI, and other federal agencies, or, excuse me, or other federal agencies. What has been less discussed is the possibility that Hastings was assassinated by private contractors, conceivably the same types who were involved or affiliated with the operations in Iraq or Afghanistan, thousands of whom remain active today. And... Jeremy Scahill did a book called Dirty Wars and also Blackwater, which he goes into. He's kind of another journalist that was like Hastings, a frontline war guy. And he goes into all the the different um, 
information on private contractors and how we use private contractors over our own troops a lot of times in these wars. And uh, even after private defense contractors committed gross and punishable offenses overseas, the same firms continue to receive no-bid contracts from U.S. government with zero accountability for their crimes. It was like a, a loophole for a while. They're out there fucking murdering people, right? There's war crimes for people in the army and people in, you know, um, the Marines, those type of things. These private contractors, they're not under those same laws. So they, they had the, like this loophole, and I think that's why they were using them. They could just go in there, kick a fucking door down in the house, murder people. It's no problem. There's no actual crime there. Yeah, this is, they're, they're, uh, this is something that the world really hasn't seen is the lack of uniformed uh, forces uh, where now these you have a bunch of guys in plain clothes acting out what would normally be uh, a uniformed soldier uh, carrying a flag, you know, so a little different. Some $3.3 trillion are spent on private military contractors since 9-11. But what rarely gets discussed beyond the, beyond the dollars wasted in the crimes committed by private war profiteering corporations is the pervasive growing sense of domination of these mega firms in the past decade that have solidified their rule over the U.S. military and foreign policy decisions. The questions that that Hastings' unexplained death poses is whether or not those same private militarized forces may be bringing the war home as they deploy technology and battlefield-honored tactics to ensure the deeper truths remain unseen and that nothing threatens the bottom line. And, I mean, this is a viable theory. If anybody is going to be able to wipe someone out, you know what I mean? Like, these guys these guys have really good tactic you know like this is essentially all they do yeah no that's definitely it and a lot of them know the i guess the ways of the military because i'm I'm almost certain they only hire from ex-military guys and just south of the melrose intersection on highland avenue in hollywood's hancock park neighborhood the palm tree where michael hastings car crashed and exploded in flames it remains scorched black about 20 feet high. Parts of the car are buried in the base of the tree where a poster is attached that reads, the truth will set you free on one line and hashtag Hastings on another. A military medal is also pinned to the tree. And so wrapping up, um, you know, this... His friends and family who knew him, everyone says he drives like a grandma. That was the quote that that I had that you kind of said something along those lines that made me think of that. But that was a direct quote from Staff Sergeant Joe Biggs, who was the guy he blind copied in the the last email where he was trying to warn people. And he said that he had a lot of close friends and family that cared about him. He had a good life to live. There's no way he would have been acting erratic like that and acting out of control. Hastings' last article published on BuzzFeed exposed Democratic Party leaders, including President Obama, Secretary of State John Kerry, and Senate Armed Services Committee Chairman Carl Levin for their support of the same domestic spying programs they had criticized during the Bush years. 
but which they worked to expand under the Obama administration. Obama embraced the U.S. drone program, overseeing more strikes in his first year than Bush carried out during his entire presidency. A total of 563 strikes, largely by drones, targeted Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen during Obama's first two terms, compared to 57 strikes under Bush. Between 384 and 807 civilians were killed in those countries, according to reports logged by the Bureau. Um, This was a huge thing. Um, There were American citizens that Obama blew up overseas as well. That was highly controversial, obviously. Yeah, and this was something that Hastings was exposing. It's something that Jeremy Scahill, uh, he also has a, a drone book based on all the drone warfare. I feel like you you know a little bit about that, John, right? The drone stuff? Yeah, I'm, uh, we, we deal with that quite a bit. Um, and since those times, I mean, you could argue that the Obama administration had a lot more access to these things because they were more widely available at the time. They had more advanced and newer models uh, from the Predator drone that, that everyone kind of knows of. Has been, that's pretty much been phased out, um, where it, 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 it then became from a reconnaissance uh, drone to they weaponized it. Um, and then, on top of that, operators. Um, they didn't have the number of uh, pilots that they do now. Uh, the U.S. Air Force actually started decreasing their manned pilot programs and sending these kids that are pilot candidates to... Um, unmanned aerial systems school instead, which they're not happy about because they, their whole lives they've been dreaming about being fighter pilots and now they're being assigned to become uh, uh, UAS pilots. So um, either way, um, uh, you know, you can argue many different ways of why the Obama administration used them so often. And it was most likely because they were just more widely available and the man, the manning uh, was also more available compared to the, um, the Bush administration. Yeah. Um, and now they're they're used by private companies. And now you could buy a small one at uh, at Best Buy and, uh, you know, try to take out one of my airplanes with it. So, <laughs> yo, don't do that, guys. Yeah. Now, actually, in that in that line, I mean, we joke about it, but the companies that make them like the um, uh, I forget the, 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 the Chinese company, but it's very uh, it, it's a. Uh, they, they pretty much make all of them now. They, they're the ones that make the the Mavic Pro, um, uh, DJI. That's what they are. DJI. Um, they have geofencing, so they know their firmware. Not their not just their software. Their their firmware has geofencing, which uh, keeps the um, device from going up within, I believe, it's a three mile or five mile radius of an airport. So they, they, you know, the manufacturers are trying to keep people from doing stupid things. No, that's that's definitely a good change. I think um, as far as drone, I, I agree with you. Obviously, as technology evolves, you know, um, it's going to be utilized more, especially in the case of the Bush and Obama drone strikes. But there's no denying that, um, you know, some horrible, some horrible choices you have to make with that stuff. It's like okay, well, we have this target who is on the kill list and he's in this location and there's also a school with children uh, two miles away. You know what I mean? Or yeah, risk in assessment the vicin- is always something that, right? 
And with drones, you're pressing a button. It just ends up making it easier to kill civilians and never look back, you know? But that's a topic for another day. But it's um, it was something that Hastings was looking into and was critical about. Uh, but I guess we can end on one of Hastings' most remembered lines is, when writing for a mass audience, put a fact in every sentence. And as far as the facts go, the truth behind Michael Hastings' death, whether he was intentionally killed and by whom, may be open to a much bigger, broader, and more dangerous story than the Americans he was writing for are prepared to face. So what do you guys What do you guys think? You think he was uh, taken out? Absolutely. If somebody had a gun to your head and they were like, you got to make a decision. Yeah, I... It's real. That's really suspicious, man. Um, you know, I'm sure that a lot of these people that do this for a living probably think twice when they re- when they publish certain things. And and there are some that don't think at all. You know, that that are just you know gun ho and shoot from the hip and have this like moral uh, motivation to do the right thing, I guess. Um, but uh, um, there's risk to a lot of stuff, and and. I th- the reason why I, I had mentioned that quote earlier is because, I mean, it's a fact. These people have killed other people, and what's to keep them from harming you or someone that you care about when you're uh, exposing um, something really bad about them and possibly uh, destroying their livelihood, if not their entire career, or maybe even landing them in jail? Right. They're, they're killing at the behest of other people. So why wouldn't they kill on their own behalf? You know, it, it, it yeah. just um, you know it, you'd be silly to argue against uh, somebody being capable of doing that. That's already done it. And it's like these guys, these journalists, they got fucking balls, man. You know what I mean? That's what I mean. To oh, be yeah. out, to be out oh, there, yeah. you're risking your life to get the story. You're certainly not going to be afraid to publish it and deal with the repercussions, right? Yeah, the fucking. And think about the. He's probably under the impression the at, at home it's it's there's no way it can be as bad as when I was in Afghanistan. Right, and think about the time that we live in now, where this isn't post Vietnam, where where we're you know spitting on service members. We the American culture now is to highly be highly respectful of service member, um, uh, those who have served and those who are serving, um, and to not look the other way, but to always give them the benefit of the doubt and, and, and treat them with the utmost respect, you know? So this isn't popular to go after a high-ranking, um, highly decorated commander. Um, you know, it, it, it's it, it's going to take a lot of know-how and just, like you said, a lot of balls to, to, to really get through it. Right. It's like he already went after McChrystal, and then you have the the documentation from the WikiLeaks and um that that validates you know that he was being looked at by the CIA the FBI they they were on to him yeah well that's it though guys i mean that's pretty much the story there's no real way for us to get a definitive answer but that is the strange death of of Michael Hastings all that's left is i guess for the listener to decide you know what do you guys think? Go to www.evilexamined.com to watch the videos for yourself. You know, we're also putting up uh, a lot of extra evil content. Um, what I did a, I did a, yeah, I released a piece on black helicopters today. 
Um, Gene, you did a, a Mother's Day horror true crime story uh, the day prior. We've also put up some pretty cool uh, UFO videos, some pretty wild shit there too. So, you know, and uh, just leave your opinion on our social media pages. Let us know what you think about the story in general. You think uh, it was conspiracy or was he just cracked out? Because they sprinkled that crack juice on him, right? Right at the end. Yeah. All right. And want to thank John the Aviator for joining us again. John, it's always a pleasure. We'll definitely have you back on in the future. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Uh, be safe out there, right? All right. Peace. Thank you, John. Yeah, whatever you